Are you all packed up for our trip? No, not at all. But uh, that's going to happen tonight. Oh, yeah. So I well, keep I got to do laundry too. first. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I'm totally going to do it after the show. Wes and I tomorrow fly out to San Antonio, San Antonio, Texas, for the Texas Cyber Summit. Before the show, we were both checking in and realizing neither of us is prepared for those. What about you, Cheesy? Are you packed? Yeah, I'm pretty much packed up. I've got a few things to add, uh, some swag to throw into the back of the vehicle. But other than that, yeah, I'm ready to go. Looking forward to hanging out with you guys, obviously. I know. That is going to be a lot of fun. We got, uh, well, Elle set us all up with an Airbnb, so we'll be uh, hanging out at the Airbnb, doing stuff. That'll be really good. I feel like it's going to be kind of like a Red Hat Summit was, where we all get to decompress at the end of the day and kind of wrap out for a few. And like last time, we always get geeky sitting around talking about Linux when we get an Airbnb. That's the greatest thing, to get to geek out in person. Welcome into Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. This is one of those episodes where we got together last week and we thought, well, let's let's chat about next week's episode. And about 10 hours later, <laughs> we've got something really cool, but we went down a few rabbit holes. So hopefully we'll save you some time when you're trying to set up an ultimate LAN mesh. <laughs> Powered by WireGuard, WireGuard, WireGuard. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about that because I think... Soon, you'll be hearing much more about WireGuard. Let's hope so. Yeah, it seems like there's some pieces that are moving that are going to kick things into high gear. And it turns out things are a bit more complex than maybe you might appreciate, but some things are a little easier. So we'll get into how I bridged a mobile network with a LAN network using WireGuard and making all the devices on each end of the LAN accessible to each other. It's really neat, and it's essentially enterprise-grade networking tech, like stuff that you used to have to pay Cisco tens of thousands of dollars to do, and now it's baked right into Linux. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe people haven't seen your RV, but you don't have room for a network rack in there. <laughs> so we'll talk so much more about that in a little bit. Of course, we've got the community news. There's some good stuff in there to get to, as well as our virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. Hi, good to see you, Wimpy and Minimech and Bitten and Carl and Bruce. And I'm going to say Acnomad. Can't quite see from across the room. What is it there? Read it for me there, Wes. Wes is closer. Ace Nomad. There you go. That's it. Hey, you got it. You got it. Nice. Ace Nomad. Well, welcome in. Glad to have you here. And of course, Mr. Bacon's there too. Hey, Cheesy. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, everybody? Oh, you know, getting ready to fly down to San Antonio. Looking forward to seeing you. Hell yeah. Yeah, I am. I, I think I think it's going to be nice to get a little shift in weather, too, from the Pacific Northwest. More than a little shift. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some community news. And Linus kicks it off this week after, well, some not-so-surprising comments about Microsoft, I suppose. I was going to say somewhat surprising, but if you know Linus, he's very pragmatic about these kinds yes. of things. Uh, so SVJN from ZDNet was at the Linux Plumbers Conference and uh, put the question to Linus, uh, how he feels about Microsoft. Linus is then quoted as saying, The whole anti-Microsoft thing was sometimes funny as a joke, but not really. Today, they're actually much friendlier. I talked to Microsoft engineers at various conferences, and I feel like, yes, they have changed. And the engineers are happy. They're, like, really happy working on Linux. So I completely dismiss all this anti-Microsoft stuff. Hmm. Uh, if you want more context, you can read the full article over at OMG Ubuntu. Uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes. 
this to me sounds like a, a an individual, Linus, that has to interact with other individuals, Microsoft developers, on an ongoing basis and has formed what is pretty much considered a cordial working relationship. Right. I mean, I think it's very different from our perspective, watching development happen and different parties interested. Linus is right there in the mix of it all. And yeah, the probably things about kernel development in terms of people, less so than as an abstraction far away. You recall he had a very pragmatic stance about Android and the use of the Linux kernel and having really zero issue that people don't know they're using Linux. He was, he's fine with that. That's not what we created Linux for. Um, so the whole anti-Microsoft thing was sometimes funny as a joke, but not really. That's the line that stuck out to me the most. Because he's kind of like saying the whole MS dollar sign thing, like it never really was all that funny. And it feels like in a couple of big ways, the community is being told, move on. Move on with the Microsoft stuff. Move on with Richard Stallman. Just let's just move on. And it's it's a big ask, both of those things, and they both represent a massive sea change, and I think that's why it's taking so much processing by everyone. It kind of makes me think we need to be more nimble in general, right? Like, it's not to say that Microsoft's going to be a great Linux ally forever. We just need to judge it based on what's happening now. And right. I don't mean to say forget the past, but also remember the present. By the time we get it figured out, things will have changed. Exactly. Well then, moving on from that, let's talk about the future of OpenPGB in Thunderbird. I love Enigmail. It's my go-to first thing I install when I have a new Thunderbird installation, and it makes using GPG encryption really straightforward. I can sign my messages really simply. I can decrypt and encrypt them. It's a great piece of software. Yeah, something tells me if you had to go do this on the command line, you just wouldn't do it. I mean, maybe like make my keys and stuff. It's actually not so bad. Like I suppose if you're just going to encrypt a text file and then attach a text file to an email, it's not that bad to do it from the command line, but a whole email, (laughs) it's really crazy, that workflow. Um, That's why I was a little surprised to see that Enigmail is essentially, for Thunderbird, going away with the new releases of Thunderbird. This is interesting, right? Because people people use it a lot. It's it's kind of being depended on. It has a pretty substantial feature set. It's it's um it is a really full featured and sometimes maybe over overly complicated uh, a piece of software. But it it appears that the Mozilla developers are actively working on not just improving the old code base of Thunderbird, but integrating encryption support for OpenPGP directly into Thunderbird as a core feature. Yeah, that's this is kind of huge. I'm so, excited about it. Yeah, I am too. I think it's good. I think it means more people have access to encryption. And having it built in means that perhaps more people will use it. So using encryption becomes more of a norm, which I think is tremendously important. But the Mozilla developers, the Thunderbird developers, and the Enigma developer are very upfront about the fact that the stuff that's going to be built into Thunderbird will be nowhere as feature complete as to what Enigmail could do. Yeah, although Patrick Brunschwig, the maintainer of Enigmail, makes a good point here. But in my eyes, this is by far outweighed by the fact that OpenPGP will be part of Thunderbird and no add-on and no third-party tool will be required. And that's probably worth it, right? If you need yeah. more features, I'm sure new add-ons will you know, spring into existence and, well, go make a PR against future Thunderbird. Yeah, Enigma itself won't be moving forward. Um, they write that the the new API is just nowhere as feature-rich as the old web extensions API that they could use to create extensions, and that there's just less stuff they can do now. Uh, but overall, it makes Thunderbird a more secure product. Yeah, 
Patrick's going to continue to support and maintain Enigmail for Thunderbird 68 until six months after Thunderbird 78 comes out. And we'll also continue to support Enigmail for Postbox, which is running on a different release schedule. What do you think, Wimpy? Could the uh, team pull it off? Could they get you to switch back to Thunderbird? No. Never? <laughs> Interestingly, I there was a period at which I had Thunderbird and Evolution installed on my machine whilst I was evaluating Evolution. And I had a need to send a signed and also an encrypted email. And I chose to do it with Evolution because that encryption integration is just better. It's simpler too. Yeah, it's simpler to use. Yeah. So I chose to use Evolution to send my signed and encrypted emails. So consequently, no. Um, You know, Thunderbird has served me very well for a very, very long time. And it you know, has been for me and is for many people a staple of the Linux desktop. But I've found a new place to manage my email and I'm very happy with where I've landed. Yeah, it it, it is particularly straightforward and easy to use in evolution. I say good on the, good on the Thunderbird project, though, for baking this feature in. I think your points are well taken, Wes. Um, you know, we should probably uh, we should probably just uh, step away from the old show here for a second. Come here. The cone of silence. Let's not. Don't tell anybody this. It's so cozy in here. I love the cone. Okay, I think we got a problem. Oh, I don't know if this Atari VCS is going to work out. Do you we know? have a problem, or do you have? Yeah, a problem? I have a problem. Well, I mean, as a, the the royal we as a show, because I backed this thing for the show. Oh yeah, right. I mean, show. not for myself. I backed it for the show, Wes. Oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, Wimpy's in the cone of silence. <laughs> Yeah, so um, this is bad. It looks like a designer who was contracted to work with Atari on the VCS has told the register that they haven't been paid going back over six months. The consultancy has not been paid by Atari. And um, he says, as a small company, they're lucky to have survived this long. Because it's been rough, Wes. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have dollars coming in, how are you supposed to keep working? Here's the concern I have. This launch of this retro console that looks like the old Atari running Linux that's supposedly going to have um, the ability to run other operating systems on it as well. It's already late at this point, and it's also listed as one of the three operational goals for Atari in 2019, 20, and 2020 Um Along, you know, adding more games to their portfolio, but like it's not here and they're not paying their bills and it's running super late. And the more delayed it gets, the more a Raspberry Pi can do. And it's just getting more and more embarrassing in all of the ways. So what's your bet? Am I getting my Atari VCS ever? No, I don't think no, so. Never. No, never. No, never. You think, you think never? Never. Yeah, I agree with Wes. Now, the next question is, will you be refunded? No. You don't think I'm even going to get like a piece of crap hardware? No, I didn't think this three years ago. I thought it would be delayed. I mean, I thought it would, I'm like, well, I actually, one of the reasons I backed is I'm like, well, this is going to be a story. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that part has been working out. <laughs> it, yeah, it's definitely become a story. That's for sure. But I think it's interesting too, where, um, you know, some, spe- some people that have worked on the project that have chosen to remain anonymous have basically said that the executives have no clue what's going on, um, that they wanted to build a Linux-based OS, but it may not be, uh, that they were trying to sign a deal with Walmart, but Walmart wanted them to be under the $250 price point, so they just pull four gigs of RAM out of the machine. 
that they show up to a game conference with empty shells with no hardware in them. I don't know. I mean, it's all adding up to be pretty sketchy. Yeah, that is sketch. Hmm. Well, I congratulate them. Congratulations, Atari. You are continuing on in a long tradition of hardware fundraisers, and uh, we appreciate you keeping that culture alive, keeping it strong. And uh, I would love to be proved wrong. I would also love to be proved wrong. I would love at least a little piece of hardware, a little something, a little retro-looking piece of hardware that I could uh, play video games on. Godspeed. Godspeed to you. I, I hope you guys are wrong. <laughs> Jeez. Let's, all right, let's, let's change gears. Do a little, do a little housekeeping here. Uh, we just released a, I don't know, a, I wouldn't call it a breakdown so much, but maybe like a, a guide to reverse proxy. I was going to say just like a nerd out because yeah. we were all pretty excited to talk about it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us. So Wes, Alex, and myself got together for a Jupiter Extras on how we do reverse proxy when we use Nginx, when we use traffic, um, and how it all works with containers. Yeah, why would you might need a reverse proxy at all? Plus, we talk about a bunch of really great applications and little tricks and tools um, for like up- updating your Let's Encrypt certificates and your dynamic domain or your IP if you've got a domain name and all these little tools that we use. Uh, to do our own sort of fundamental hosting and reverse proxy. So go check out extras.show slash 19 for that. It's 28 minutes long, and hopefully you kind of will walk away with a pretty good concept of how it all works. And um, something we uh, we use quite a bit in production. We have, we have traffic now on two different systems in production, and uh, West Payne's making me a convert. I was an Nginx man. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing with uh, version 2 a little bit more, so I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. Hmm. Hmm. I should mention as well, with that extras.show release we did of reverse proxies, we have another one coming out that is all about the basics of containers, what it is at a fundamental level, and some things you need to know about them. No hype, no sales, it's just Alex and I doing a breakdown of how containers work. That'll be coming out in the extras feed as well. And then later this week, selfhosted.show my home network for under $200. How I set up my whole home network for under $200. That's in there. That's coming out in self-hosted this week. And then, of course, I should mention we're going to be in Texas tomorrow. Tomorrow and this weekend as the show comes out. So if you're in San Antonio, going to make it to Texas Cyber Summit or just in that area. Come say hi to us. Come say hi. There will be a barbecue Thursday night or Wednesday night? Wednesday, Wednesday night. Wednesday night. Which, 6 p.m. local time, I believe? Yeah, you and I will just be landing around then. So we may not make it till the very end if we make it. But there will be a barbecue going cheesy. You'll probably try to make it to most of that, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, I'll be there for sure. Um, I hear that the cake is not a lie. It will, in fact, be there. So come help us celebrate the unbirthday for Elle and Allie and just kind of get together and hang out. I think we have something like 30... 33 people so far signed up for that meetup. People don't say no to barbecue. <laughs> Never do. You don't say no to barbecue. And Carl has vetted the barbecue for us, so you know it's good. <laughs> I love that. All right, there you have it. That's what you need to know about. Moving right along now. We, well, really me, had a situation that was particularly challenging to solve. In my home network, I am afflicted by double gnat. We all have it from time to time, every now and then. Maybe you're in a hotel. Maybe you're going somewhere that's off of your, of your regular beaten path, and you wind up, even though you tried your best, 
in a double net situation. And you've got kind of a complicated setup. I mean, you've got a mobile home, right? Right. So I frequently find myself in the double net. Now, just a brief uh, what explanation of what I mean there. When I say double net, I mean that my internet connection is getting a 192.168.1.something address as if it were on a LAN. That is the quote-unquote public address that my router is getting. So you've got that from your ISP regardless. Yeah, so I'm on a 192, and then my LAN's also on a 172.16.0.0, whatever. So I have a NAT just for days. So it's, it's NAT all the way down. This makes accepting in, inbound connections essentially impossible. I can't SSH into my LAN. I can't VPN into my LAN because of this situation, because of this double NAT situation. It's the worst. Yeah, no, no, just easy open up a port on your firewall and call it a day, right? That you don't have access to that. Right. But I demand, I demand full remote access, Wes. The goal I wanted was to connect the studio network and my home network together. So, when sitting on either LAN, I could access systems from the other LAN. Right. I mean, you've been, as people following self-hosted, well, no, you're, you're doing all kinds of fun stuff, hosting things on all manner of gadgets. You've got your RV just automated and wired up to yeah. the nines. Yeah, I'll go, this, uh, this upcoming self-hosted episode goes into some of that. Um, there's a lot of ways you can solve this. Tink, VPN, is something we've talked about. Sure. Open VPN is very popular. I suppose at the end of the day, you could really just do it with a SSH tunnel. Sure. There's also a lot of um, services out there that'll you know sort of forward those ports along for you and give you a port on their public IP address. But that's not really the spirit of what we wanted to do. Right. Right. I wanted to solve this using some open source software, built-in stuff to Linux. Oh, we could have used OpenVPN too, but we wanted we wanted to mess around with WireGuard because it was a great opportunity to learn what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. And there's some things that you, ha- there's some infrastructure that you have to build yourself when you're using WireGuard that you might not with other solutions. So um, a quick recap, WireGuard is a new type of VPN connection available for Linux that right now uses some very clever crypto called Zinc, but sounds like possibly in the future we'll use the standard crypto that's in the Linux kernel. It creates a new interface on your box, a new network interface. Just like shows up like any old interface. Like ETH0, now you got WG0. Yep. Like just another interface, and you can up and down that interface. When it's up, your VPN is established. And it, you can interact with it like you would in any other interface on your system. It's so great that way. Another nice thing about it is it, it, it's just minimal and clean and fast. And unlike mm-hmm. some other options like OpenVPN, say, there's not as much complicated stateful tracking of like connection status because all the cryptography handles it and you just basically are shoving encrypted packets at a host. That host that's receiving it knows that if, if it can read that, it's got a big map of allowed IPs and which keys can send from those IPs and it just handles it. So instead of having to make sure that your VPN's restarted correctly, if you've got your interface up and you have an internet connection, WireGuard's going to figure it out. Now, the other thing that it does really well is it bounces back. You know, WireGuard can get knocked down, but it gets back up every single time. And this is particularly useful in an RV that's going down the road that sometimes will have connectivity and sometimes will not. Sometimes I'll be parked in a national park that has no wireless signal for miles. And then when I get back into civilization, I just want things to kind of pick back up and start working again. No futzing. WireGuard's really good at that, to a fault. <laughs> it, it, it even bit West today. 
<laughs> as we were setting some of this up. Yeah, we've been testing things out. So last night I was working on some of this and I VPNed into the studio from home and of course forgot to forgot to down that interface. And then we're doing some troubleshooting and I'm realizing like, I, I can't ping that host. What's what's happening? It's working on your machine. And of course I was routing through WireGuard because it had just magically bounced back. It reconnected and... Um... It just, it does that, and that's one of the aspects that I really want in this particular kind of setup. The idea being that when I do have connectivity, I can traverse both lands with ease, as as if there is a connection persistently through them. Right. I mean, you might be doing a show, let's say, remotely from the rig, and you want to come in and, and be able to mess with this with the mixer like you're on the local network. The other reason why I really want to do this is I'm trying to not expose any public ports on my homeland. So there's no inbound connections other than an outbound WireGuard connection. So I have an outbound WireGuard connection on a Raspberry Pi in my RV that runs Raspbian. And then on there is Docker, which is running PyHole. So this is essentially my network services Pi. And on there, I have a persistent WireGuard connection back to the studio. The neat thing about it is... WireGuard is pretty clever on how it routes traffic. It's it's pretty intelligent about that. Yeah, you have all kinds of options, especially if you're using some of the nice, like the WG Quick script that comes with the WireGuard tool set. As long as you've given it the right information about, you know, what IP ranges are in play, it's going to run a lot of the right IP tables commands for you. So you don't have to worry so much about that. Yeah, that is really nice. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And uh, with a little bit of extra clever... Um, DNS trickery, we've got this thing working pretty well. So um, let's talk about a couple of the things we had to do to actually make this work. So we have a we have an outbound connection from my RV coming into the studio. That from from a box here in the studio, just any one of these computers, I can now access the systems in my RV. How did we make that possible? We had to do a, a, a bit of routing routing trickery, a little bit of DHCP trickery, and a little bit of DNS. But at the end of the day, once you know what to do, it's only about maybe a half hour's worth of work. Yeah, I mean, so once we've got the, you know, our WireGuard VPN network, it's got its own IP space, right? And then there's an IP space for the studio, and there's a different IP space for your network at the RV. Uh, so basically, we just had to make sure that both sides knew about the other one, right? So somewhere you need to add a route entry that, that says, oh, if you want to get to space A, here's the machine to do it, whether that's the Pi or whatever gateway box we've got here. Um, for the most part, depending on how you set it up, WireGuard will handle that, or you may need to add a routing entry somewhere if you don't have that pushed from your gateway. So in your RV, we're using DNS mask on the pie hole, which is kind of great, uh, and added a little bit of extra config that basically tells anyone who's pulling a DHCP lease that, oh, hey, there's this additional network, and to get to it, well, use me as a gateway. We didn't quite have that option here at the studio for really some boring reasons. Um, so we've just added some manual routes for the moment to machines that need access back to your RV, and that works just the same. Yeah. And so every device at the RV knows how to route back here, but only select systems in the studio can route to the RV, which I kind of prefer anyways. Yeah, I mean, my laptop doesn't need access. Yeah. And we, you, you know how to do it if for some reason I needed your help with something, so it's not like it's not a, a, a possibility. Um, and then we also uh, use DNS mask to put some nice names to all these different uh, IP addresses. Yeah, I mean, since we were already using PyHole and then took the opportunity to deploy another PyHole here at the studio, and it's using DNS mask under the hood, it, it's just so easy to add that stuff, right? So we just added an extra file where we defined some new host entries, and 
statically add them for any of the ones we care about. Mm-hmm. And that file, just it just looks like a host file, so you just put the machine and the IP in there and... Done. Done. It's really easy. And now all the machines that uh, get that from the DHCP server can query that. Now they can talk to each other by machine name. And we have created, essentially, a little two-way tunnel on using WireGuard that involves no inbound connections to my homeland. Right. It's, it's, it's nice that way so that as long as you've got internet connection, well, WireGuard's just going to go build up a tether right here to the studio. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, what we may want to do down the line is add a few other redundant connections. We've got some, you know, VPSs out there in the cloud, and we could add some there, too, so that as long as your RV's got connection and not all of our machines are down, you're going to have a backdoor in. West Pain, you're always watching my back door. Now, we also decided to play around, and really, this is how this all got kicked off, to tell you the truth, with a tool called Subspace. Not only does it have a badass name, but it is a very elegant, simple-to-use, WireGuard VPN server GUI. Yes, friends, it's a graphical front-end to WireGuard. It's called Subspace, and it has a couple of catches it really wants to own the box it's on. Yeah. Um, so this is coming from Portal.Cloud. It's open source. It's MIT licensed and mostly based in Go. And if you're just running this as a machine, you want to have some VPS that you're going to connect a whole bunch of other devices to when you want to sort of form a VPN that way, it is great. Especially if you don't want to customize any of your configs, Subspace works very well. Yes. I'll, I'll also just add a little side note here. When I was messing around with Subspace, I noted that Linode has a community image that's ready to go with WireGuard all pre-installed. WireGuard is not hard to set up on um, pretty much all major distros because it's all just, there's so many great guides. Yeah. Um, but there are now some VPS images that are one-click deployments with WireGuard ready to go, and then you could just throw a subspace on top of it, and you're done. Yeah, I mean, we were just running it from a container, but since it's Go, I'm sure you could, you know, you could find all manner of ways of running it. Yeah, it's going to give you a UI to manage devices, to manage keys. And while we didn't test this aspect of it very much because we didn't, we didn't require this, it may also do some easy name resolution for devices that are on the VPN IP space. Yeah, it turns out it's also running DNS mask and then adding host entries for as you add them, you know, configure them and giving access to your VPN. Yeah. And that's really where subspace shines is the kind of trickiest part about WireGuard often is managing all the keys that you have to keep track of, especially once you've got, say, 5, 6, 10, 20 machines. With subspace, you've got them all there as a list and you as the administrator can go download those configs, modify them, mess with them if you need to. Now, unfortunately, you're going to have to do that manually, and this is where some of the limitations of subspace comes in. It seems to me like a project ripe for some community involvement, because right now it hasn't been updated in a couple months, and sort of seems like it's probably just tossed over as an open-source contribution, which is great. I don't mean that as a bad thing. It just means it doesn't have a lot of customization built in. Yeah. It's uh, made by a VPS provider to, make, to just create something that's easy for their customers to use. And I think it is very much sort of like, here's, here's the open source version of it. However, it's so fantastic, a little bit of love, and it could be perfect. Um, in our testing, I, I can't remember how long. I want to say 10 seconds is how long it took me to get a WireGuard VPN created and connected yeah, on Yeah, I just an sent iPhone. you the URL and the password, and you were in. It's so good because it uh, subspace will create a QR code that contains all the config info you need for the WireGuard VPN on the client. So uh, as fast as my phone could read the QR code, my VPN configuration was set up. I tap in my, my iPhone pin code once to add it to the network stack. And at the network level, I can now WireGuard VPN from my freaking iPhone. 
That's what's so great about WireGuard. I mean, one of the many things that's so great, really, is that the mobile clients have really come a long way, right? Even on iOS, which feels like it should be a, a pretty foreign platform to WireGuard, those apps are rock solid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So subspace is killer when you're just trying to you know, create something that's really easy for end users to consume as well. Family members that you want to give remote VPN access to your LAN, maybe you have, like for me, my notes now are on my, on my LAN. They're offline, and I use WireGuard. Just I leave that persistently connected when I'm not home, and I just access everything as if I were there. And so it's, it's such a great tool. Cheesy, I think uh, you happen to be playing with WireGuard over the weekend too. Yeah, so my, my use case is a little different. I wasn't necessarily trying to connect to LANs. Um, I just wanted something that whenever I was traveling, I could easily uh, connect through a VPN and, and kind of tunnel my traffic through and stuff. And I connected to a private VPN provider. In my case, I'm trying out VPNAC. Uh, there are a ton of different ones out there, though I will say that it seems to be the least supported option WireGuard does uh, compared to OpenVPN. So you might end up paying a little bit more for it. But I found that it was less expensive for me to buy a yearly subscription than what it would cost me to run the cheapest Linode. Yeah, it is kind of expensive if you're only using a VPS for WireGuard. You could you could do something like this and get uh, just a hosted service. Were you worried, though, about... You know, the like privacy or security implications of connecting to a third party VPN versus one that you have a little more direct control over? Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, that's always a concern. But I felt that given the use case, I think it's going to work fine for me. I'm not overly paranoid about it. You're more thinking like in the hotel scenario and you want to protect your traffic and you're not so worried about the other end. Exactly. I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to using a hosted WireGuard service provider. Um, I think I heard NordVPN does it. Yeah, more and more are. Actually, I had an existing account with one of the providers and I saw the other day they have WireGuard support. Let's go around the horn in the mumble room. Does anybody in the mumble room want to volunteer a a rough overview of how they do a VPN solution if they have one? I'm sure not everybody does, but someone in there must uh, must be using a VPN for something. Well, in fact, I have one. I have a little dacha, so I mean a little apartment in the Alps, in the Swiss Alps. So I have direct access to this router, but it's using uh, internal router software. It's a Fritz box. I don't know if you know these in the United States. Mm. They have good VPN solutions. Cool. So you can directly access this router and from then you can do uh, you can access whatever you want. You know, I I wouldn't be surprised if for a lot of people the answer is don't use a VPN, but just use SSH. Because you'd be surprised what you can get away with, with port 40 and whatnot, with just SSH. What about you, Wimpy? Do you have any remote login solutions for, I mean, you travel a lot these days. You must every now and then wish you could get back to your LAN. Yes, I do have VPN running. I've got VPN running on a Raspberry Pi that is natted through my router when I need to get to my home network. Mm, mm, very nice. And so you're using the higher, and and do you find it to be sufficiently fast enough in, in uh, even with the network limitations and whatnot of the pies? Yeah, once once the key negotiation is out of the way, it's perfectly fast enough, you uh-huh. know, cuz I'm not I'm usually just wanting to SSH in. I'm not wanting to like stream video or anything like that. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. What about you, Carl? Do you have any remote access solutions when you're on the go? Yes, sir. I'll use uh, SSH tunnels pretty regularly. I just got used to it uh, for my day job, and it's just my go-to now. Yeah, I think that's probably 
if somebody if somebody wanted uh, like a hot take, I'd say don't use a VPN. <laughs> use an SSH uh, tunnel. Right. You know, one one nice thing about doing it the way you're doing it now too is sort of the dynamic DNS stuff. Well, it doesn't really matter as much because you're not going that direction. Right. The connections are all they all start from the RV, and so uh, which is great because that's where the connectivity is going to be the most hit and miss. There could be days where there's no connectivity. It's funny, as we were sort of testing this out, both on the RV and here at the studio, setting up those SSH channels just as backdoors in yes. case we messed something up, that was handy more than once. Yeah, yeah. One time we couldn't get into the WireGuard server, uh, so it was nice to be able to get into another machine on the LAN. And then uh, until the WireGuard uh, tunnel was up from the RV. We had really no way into the RV other than an SSH tunnel. <laughs> just So I just uh, was able to connect out in that case to a machine that we share. And then then we came back in over that machine. But um, there are there are a lot of different ways you can pull these tricks off. Even if you, like me, suffer the plague of double NAT, there is a solution out there for you. And uh, WireGuard may be it, an SSH uh, tunnel may be it. And the other options out there, like OpenVPN and others, are still perfectly viable. I, Wes and I just, we think you're going to be hearing a lot more about WireGuard um, over the remainder of this year and early next year. I think it's going to be a pretty big story as it gets merged into Linux kernel. Yeah, there's already so much support, right? I mean, we were able to get it working on a Raspberry Pi. It took a little bit of doing here and there, but we got it to work. There's already devices out there that have WireGuard support, routers that you can find. So there's all kinds of gadgets. And once it's mainline, I'm sure there'll be more. We had a really brief but great opportunity to just have a quick email exchange with uh, the developer of WireGuard as we were doing some of the uh, preparation for this project. And, uh, you know, you, you, it's hard to read much into just a quick couple of emails. But Jason was, seemed really, really accommodating to our questions, uh, really clear-spoken, and um, really engaged. Like, he was right on answering the stuff. Uh, he gave us really clear, concise answers to our questions. And um, it just... You know, I just sat there for a moment thinking, how awesome is this? Not at the end of it, I just said, you know, thank you for WireGuard. Just thank you because it's such it's it's such a great project. Um, and then to also have him answer our questions, you know, just a couple of yeah, he, he's very active given you know presentations. And yeah. if you're more curious too, there's a, a WireGuard mailing list that you can follow for you know, stay tuned for updates. Yeah, there will be updates coming. Um, he he said to us that there'll be some more significant developments over the next week or two. Uh, and to keep an eye out for that. So, oh boy, yeah, I think you will be hearing a lot more about it. And I am, I'm elated with the setup now. It's so slick to be sitting on either LAN and be able to get access to everything on either side from any machine. And I think it's kind of just enough. You know, WireGuard integrates so nicely with the rest of Linux. Like it, it plays nicely with IP tables and the IP Route two package and and all the modern Linux networking stuff. Plus, since you don't have some daemon running somewhere. You know, if you're not touching it all the time, it's just simpler to administer, and I think that's something that will give it staying power. So I'm glad you said that, because I think that maybe was the unspoken piece that we haven't really made clear, is what, what makes it so great is it's just enough VPN, and then it works with all of the other things on Linux that you're used to working with. So even, you know, an old blockhead sysadmin like me is able to work with something relatively brand new, because I understand default routes... DNS, IP tables, like I get that stuff, and all of that is applicable here. That's so great. And that, you're right, it's just enough VPN, and and it's that perfect Unix philosophy philosophy, where it's, uh, you know, the right tool for the right job, and it doesn't do too much more than that. And um, we love it. 
anyways, enough enough fawning, I suppose, because we have an app pick this week that uh, Wes Payne built just for us. <laughs> he set up a container even for it. It is truly something that the internet's been demanding. Spotify on the command line. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, you can have a Spotify UI written in Rust on your command line. Oh my, let's just come on now. I know, you've been laying awake at night thinking to yourself, life is great, except I can't run Spotify on the command line. So, um, why did you have to create a entire build environment? <laughs> Well, right now, the release binaries they've got over on GitHub are only supported on macOS. And since this is Linux Unplugged, that wasn't going to fly. And I know you're shocked to hear this, but on the current setup on this laptop, I didn't have the Rust build chain already installed. So well, what do I do but pull down a container? So there's a, a Rust build environment container? Yeah, of course. From the f- official one, even. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so then you just, you know, <laughs> use Cargo, the excellent build tool, uh, install the package, and again, since it's Rust, I just copied the built binary out of the container onto my local system. Yeah, I mean, once it's built, right, it's you're done. Good to go. Why don't they just do that then? Well, if you're developing on a Mac, you have to set up like a Linux build server and, you know. You know what they have to do is they could download this container. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Now, one little catch here, it has a great little introduction to help you go through the, like, create an app, and you have to get, like, the, the token and the secret so you can auth to it. And apparently, somehow, I actually uh, signed into your account. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm also not clear in that I'm just trying this now. It, it seems like it's actually used to control another device. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so when I loaded it up, it gave me, like... You were controlling the soundboard machine. Yeah, the right. soundboard machine, or I can control it running on an Echo, say. Right. Yeah, that's Spotify Connect right there, yeah. So um, <laughs> that's I don't know how that happens since that's on your own machine, uh, but it's a, it's great. And yeah, so you, the thing is, you we were thinking, wouldn't it be fun just to have again like a, some sort of device, like a Raspberry Pi or something, that's just sitting around with this always going, and then you just could t- turn turn on the speakers when you want to listen or not. And I love a nice terminal user interface like yeah. this. It feels so clean. I don't have to mess with anything else, and it's right there in a terminal which I always have open. Can I admit something? Yeah. Oh, please do. Uh, to me, that terminal UI, this NCURSA style layout, is easier for my brain to process and understand than the actual Spotify UI. That is clean and simple and well delineated. I can understand all of that just by glancing at the screen. You know, it's also great. You can use the arrow keys or it's got VI style movements <laughs> too, right? <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> Okay. All right. There you go. There you go. Did you, yeah, I'm glad you got that in there. So there, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 322 if uh, you want to uh, build it, if you have a Rust build environment and uh, want to build it. I want to make it clear. It's not ready to go out of the box unless you're on a freaking Mac. And then apparently it's just a brew away. What kind of tell you what? Next week on macOS Unplugged. All right, well, we're going to wrap up here so uh, Mr. Payne and I can go pack. If you're going to be in the San Antonio area, do come say hi to us. Otherwise, we're back next week. We're just down there for the weekend, so it doesn't really impact the show production at all, other than um, Wes won't be doing headlines. No, we've got some fill-ins. So, uh, and I'm not doing headlines. No. Neither one of us are doing headlines we're for the rest for of the week. week. Woohoo! If you haven't checked out the new daily podcast, linuxheadlines.show, it is a breakdown of the day's news events at Linux and open source in under three minutes. Yeah, you know, if, if you don't want to go troll Hacker News and find out all the things that are happening in the world, we'll, we'll do it for you. There is a really 
a fair amount of research and analysis that goes into that. We have a team member, and that is their job. Yeah, we're, we're tracking trends, making sure we follow up on things. Mm-hmm. It's not, not one of our on-air people. It's just somebody who's dedicated to that task and puts a lot of work and research into the headline show. Our staff in the newsroom. That's right. We have a newsroom now. <laughs> All right, so we do this show live, like next week, over jblive.tv. We do it on a Tuesday. We'd love to have you here. Oh, please join us. Yeah, we got the virtual lug you can hang out in. We got the chat room. Or you can just sit back and watch. But there's a lot more show. There's probably about... An hour more show if you join us live at the beginning and at the end. JBLive.tv, Tuesday, 2 p.m. Pacific, or get it converted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. you want audio only, JBLive.stream. That's right. Got to mention, too, that's also a really nice low latency way to listen, JBLive.stream. Go check out West techsnap.systems. I'm at Chris Elias, the network at Jupiter Signal. Go find the Ubuntu podcast, too. UbuntuPodcast.org. Yeah, do that. And go get Mr. Cheesy. At Cheese Bacon. That's right. Hi, everybody. See you next Tuesday. You're pointing out that that uh, Spotify app looks a lot like another famous command line music app. Well, it was Cheese Bacon that pointed that out, but I'm using Seamus. Ah, yeah. Okay. It is much easier for my muscle memory for uh, to look for songs because it's just slash and then you do some letters and then you get the songs you want. That's so it's nice. It's so easy. It is so easy and it's so fast, you know? Have we mentioned Seamus before on the show? I don't know that we have. I Guess you did. I'm going to put a bonus link in. Yeah, you, you now you even have GTK three integration, and when it comes to notification and everything, Ooh, fancy. So you can just launch. You can just launch Seamus in a terminal, and then you get uh, notifications for song change and everything. I'm putting a link to that in the show notes. That looks great. By the way, I have a question about that Spotify tree. Um, do do you have to be registered for that or? Can you just use it like that? And do you have all the ads still? Or You got to have a token, so you have to have an account. But yeah, the- I had to go create like a new client. Yeah, yeah. And I think the ads are added in line to the audio stream itself. Oh, okay, I see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's how they get you. Seamus is definitely an app pick you have to yeah. look if you just have one, because Seamus is really great. I didn't mention this in, in the show, but... um. I've kind of in the last three weeks, four weeks, kind of started reevaluating how I'm doing my music. And I think I'm going to do more local music. What? More all, or do it. I'm going to try to just do all flack local music. All flack, even. If wow. I'm going to go local. Right. I've got a couple of different areas where I can, I have speakers where I can really tell the difference. And I'm like, well, if I've got two areas that I spend, a fair, one of them is my car and I spend a lot of time in my car, I can really hear the difference in the car's speaker system. So why not? Why not, right? And I'm just going to, I'm not going to rush. I'm just going to take my time, you know, just do the right music, not mm-hmm. waste a bunch of disk space. Because really there's like a, you know, you have a hybrid approach. You have a streaming play account. Mm-hmm. Like you have access to all this cloud music. So you just start collecting the things that really matter to you. I blame Alex. You know, all this self-hosted stuff has really got me going there. <laughs> and now I'm loving it in the RV because I, ha- I can take all this stuff with me offline wherever I go. You're no longer hooked on the cloud.
I am the, I am so jazzed about self-hosting right now. This perfect time to launch a self-hosted show. Tell you what. On speakers, have you guys noticed that the uh, uh, Alexa device's favorite distribution is Ubuntu? Did you guys see that this week? Yeah, what was that? I saw the headline go by, but what does that mean? Uh, well, just ask Alexa what its favorite operating system is. All right, hold on. We, okay, we, you're going to trigger. You keep saying it. You want me to do it? I'll do it right now. Do it right now. Alexa, what's your favorite operating system? I'm glad you asked. It's all about Windows. What? What? She said it's all about Windows, dude. I just asked her and she said it's all about Windows. How dare she? Did they change it already? Did they already change it? That's too funny. I'll screw again. All right. Okay. I'm going to ask her again. You ready? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, tr- I'm sorry for everybody at home if I'm triggering your, uh, your echo devices <laughs> here. Alexa, what's your favorite operating system? Definitely Windows. Oh, man. She's picking up all the windows you're running on your network there. That's what's going on. Ah. You know, what's interesting is she shortened the answer, too. Mm-hmm. It was a tighter answer this time. I don't want to answer this again. Holy crap. What is going on there? Alexa, what's your favorite operating system? Definitely Ubuntu. What the interesting. hell? Interesting. That'll be on account of all the Ubuntu I'm running on my <laughs> network and all the windows you're running on yours. There's probably never been a Windows box on this network in the lifetime of that Echo device. No, no, it's React OS. It's just getting confused. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the country. It's the country you live in. You're in the Windows country. Oh, uh, it's because we're in Washington and it knows. That's what I thought, yeah. We're in Redmond Town. I don't know if all those previous tweets were UK-based. Do we have any Cupertino-based friends here to check in? Yeah, has anybody else uh, anybody else got a lady tube near them that isn't in Washington that could ask? Because uh, somebody in the chat room asked or something. Because what's not only weird about it to me, it's weird that she changes the answer. Like, that's something I've noticed they're doing more and more is she'll, like, give you a long answer, and then she'll give you a short answer. And then, if, like, somehow, like, if she thinks you're not very busy, she'll be like, by the way. Sometimes she does it at the wrong time. Whoa. By the way, did you know... That, and then she'll tell you about something else that they can do now that they've added. Like, yeah, it's very clever. It's very clever. I noticed that, you know, our family was barking orders at um, the Echo. And um, I felt a bit bad about that because it felt rude. So I started being polite. And occasionally it acknowledges your politeness. <laughs> Which is also a little bit creepy, but quite clever. Like a little, you're welcome. Yeah. Oh, it's no problem. (laughs) Isn't that something? It's kind of nice, though. I mean, I suppose it's all trying to increase engagement, and the more human it feels, the easier it is to talk to, and the more you'll talk to it. Ding. Yep, absolutely. They're aggressive. The Echo team is aggressive with these features. Google is a little bit slower, and Apple is glacial. Um, Like, I I am flabbergasted that the other lady tubes haven't ripped off... um, Whisper mode. If you if you have an echo, you've got to turn on whisper mode. It's the best thing for night times. Because if you whisper to it, she automatically recognizes that you're whispering and whispers the responses back That's to you. That's so smart. Super clever. Um, and there's a lot of little things like that. Like now they have celebrity voices like Samuel Jackson. Um, and they have like you can play with Jimmy Fallon. I, I mean, assume there's a Chris Fisher voice in the works. Nobody, nobody's making a wiretap device more appealing than Amazon these <laughs> days. <laughs> I tell you what. Uh, it's, and it can order you packages. <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> oh, man, I wish Mycroft would have been a thing. 